Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers. I am your host, Jeremy J. Fassett. On this episode, we get to meet Jonathan Myberg. Jonathan is probably best known as the lead singer and songwriter for the band Shearwater, who are coming up on their 20th anniversary next year. He is also a member of the band Loma, who released their debut album in 2018 and are currently working on their sophomore record. In this chat, Jonathan and I touch upon everything from his various musical pursuits, the book that he's been working on inspired by natural history and his love of birds, as well as movies we love and creativity and what it's like to really get in your own head as a writer. We also talk about how he's been holding up with the current pandemic and what he's doing with his time to keep himself grounded and sane. So please enjoy, and thank you for listening. This is me meeting Jonathan Myberg. these days i think uh, bill mckibben the writer said uh, that the head of, of 350.org said that there's some overlap between freelance writing and uh self-quarantine <laughs> so as i've been trying to i've been trying to finish up a book uh, that i've been working on for about six years and really almost 20 years in some ways hmm. so it's been a good time for me to do that uh and and also to work on the, uh, to finish up the new Loma record. And uh, I just walked in from, I'm working on a new Shearwater record right now also. Oh, so you have a lot of uh, plates spinning at the moment. Yeah, the the, the new Loma record is done. Uh, we, we've turned it in and they're just talking about when they're going to release it. And mm. the book I just sent into my, my editor, I hope it's one of the last drafts of it. There's still some, books are such a long process and they have so many different parts to them that it feels like it never really ends. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if I if I land the rest of it on schedule, which I ought to be able to do, it'll actually be published next March or something like that. Oh, okay. So how many drafts would you say you've turned in so far? Uh, this would be the third. Okay. And the first one, you know, his edits uh, become more and more granular as we go. You know, the first mm-hmm. draft, it was, it was had some general direction from him. Um, the second... Uh, it had had more direction still, basically, and then the third had a. Uh, uh, well, no, no, yeah, yeah. And the, the third was it was in response to his uh, first set of line edits, where he actually printed out the entire manuscript and mm. went through with a pencil and and said, <laughs> "It's kind of old school." It was, yeah, that reminds me of grad school. <laughs> it was exciting to to get that thing. This big cinder block of a. Of a landed on my desk I was terrified of it for a while yeah but it's also probably the kind of thing that maybe writers don't get every time <laughs> no these, it's a, it's a lot of guidance it is and I really really appreciate it I, I've, yeah I've been there's some things that I've been fighting him on over uh, like like the title and stuff like that but um, but as I'm looking at his line edits I'm, I'm really amazed at how they are for the most part well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to me then, if you're, well, of uh, you have all these things going on. Yeah, well, it's this is the thing, is that I'm out in, in rural Texas, sort of about an hour outside of Austin, mm. and so it helps to have these projects to kind of keep pulling you forward, but they're all so long, and they all have such a, such giant arcs to them that uh, you don't right. get that feeling of finishing anything very often. Right. Um, I have felt... I don't know. I mean, you have a few projects going on, it seems, but I have felt that the quarantine has been sort of um, stalling to my creativity. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a writer and I, I'm an editor and, and songwriter and I am always doing things, even if I end up not loving them, I'm always doing them. Um, but I've had trouble making too much right now well it's hard to keep your attention focused on uh, any one thing i think that one of the symptoms of the 
the quarantine is just this general baseline level of anxiety that makes everything harder to to stay uh, in. Yeah, uh, for sure. And so I, I think, well, the, like right now what we're working on in the Shearwater record uh, was some sessions that we opened up a few months ago. And I hadn't listened to them since then. Mm. And so we've got this basic framework to work with. But if I were going to try to write new songs right now, for some reason, I think that would be more difficult. Yeah, it kind of maybe helps that you had this thing recorded before this all started, or at least started before this all started. Yeah, um, exactly. To go off of. Exactly. Uh, so it kind of provides some momentum. Yeah, because I mean, I usually just record in my home office when I feel like it, which is one of the benefits of just doing this, uh, doing music on such a, on such a small scale, because you can kind yeah. of just do it whenever. But um, I tend to write pretty quickly, and I have you know made project multiple projects in a year before, and this time there's just like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just finding it really hard because it's not, I don't know. I don't, quarantine isn't very inspiring. No, you know? it's, it's uh, no, not in a, not in a narrative. You just way. feel like you're being, you're being, yeah, not in a narrative way. Exactly. That's a good, that's a good way of saying it. So I've just had trouble. I mean, I have um, a screenplay I started last year that I haven't even been able to look at in quarantine, despite everybody being like, Oh, you have so much time. You should, finish all these things but it's much easier said than done <laughs> what uh, was that your first screenplay um no i mean i did one in college um I, I was an english and a film major in college so i did one in college um as an independent study because i wanted that was just like a goal of mine to get a full-length screenplay written before i graduated yeah um because it wasn't something that was built into the curriculum to do um and then i started a new one last fall i want to say I haven't ever gotten one made. I mean, I've made my own short films, but um, I've never gotten a full length made because those See, are that's longer. that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the next thing that I'd really like to try to do is I have one idea for a movie, and I, I would the the thought of writing another giant natural history epic is uh, I'd rather <laughs> die than ever take on another project of this scope again. Right. But, uh, but there is one story that I'd, I'd like to tell, and I think it could be an incredible movie. Uh, in fact, so much so that it was it was already it, it already was made into a movie. Uh, but it was a really terrible one, and it was a long time ago, and every, nobody remembers it. Oh well, then even if they remembered it, I'm sure you're fine. Yeah, no, I'm not worried about that part. But it, it's uh, and it would it would sort of it would still have a, a natural history aspect to it. It would kind of be a little bit like. Um, uh, somewhere between Castaway and uh, and like you know, the uh, Planet Earth series in terms of what it would look oh, like. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but there, there were uh, there were these. It was the story of these two German geologists who um, ended up trying to wait out World War II in the desert in Namibia. Is this a true story? Yeah, it's a true story. Oh. One of them wrote a book about it afterwards, hmm. and uh, they lived out there in the desert for years. And they had a radio where they could hear what was going on back in the world, back in the rest of the world. But in the meantime, they were having to uh, hunt for their own food and contend with a troop of baboons that lived in the canyon. And <laughs> their dog was always getting into trouble and they would fight with each other and they would argue about what on earth civilization was even for if it only seemed to exist to destroy itself so elaborately. For some reason, this sounds familiar, but I don't think I've seen the movie that no, is very based on it. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. a way, all it'd be like a two-hander, but you'd have to have a lot of uh, um, the the wildlife effects would have to be really good. Yeah, and I mean, the only person really doing that kind of shit right now is um, John Favreau, <laughs> like the Lion King stuff right now. Oh yeah, well yeah, that it it. I don't know. I I don't. I'm so ignorant about the world of CGI and what it really takes to do a good job. Oh well, me too. <laughs> But that's a, that's sort of a, a, a daydream place. You know, you have these projects that you don't really, you're not in the nitty gritty of them at all. You just, it's a safe place for your imagination to wander around sometimes if you're yeah, being beset by all the things you're working on. I think John Gardner, the novelist, said you should always work on multiple novels at once so that you can put off one by working on another one. <laughs> See, I... Uh... Whoop, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm losing you. I don't know why. Let's go ahead. Oh, can, can you not hear me? Not well. 
No, it's telling me my internet connection is unstable. Oh, that could be why. It, that happens out here. It usually gets sort of gets better on its own. Kind of like, kind of like Trump was hoping the uh, uh, the co- the coronavirus would do. Right. It'll just miraculously get better. One day it's a miracle. It'll just be gone. <laughs> I know that's going to go. Da- that quote is just going to go down in infamy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I really enjoy writing in his voice for some reason. It, it, it <laughs> lets me get out sort of all of my my venom at him. It, there's something really satisfying about it. I don't know why. It's like you know having a little marionette that just says things like him. And the and the more <laughs> the closer I get to his actual cadence, if I'm doing that, the 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 happier it makes me. I don't know why. That's funny. I know. I don't know if I would be able to get myself to do that. <laughs> Well, it's very, it's very distinctive. It, because everybody talks about how it doesn't make any sense, but it, it does kind of because people always do follow it, and mm-hmm. so he, he, he's always sort of making these great leaps, like like a trapeze artist or something, from the beginning of one sentence to the beginning of the next one, and you're just supposed to understand what the rest of that sentence was going to be. Oh, it's totally true. I mean, if you read like the transcripts of his speeches, there the syntax is wild. Well, they're it's kind of all mes- over the place. They're mesmerizing in that way. You look at it, and, and on the one hand, you look at it and go, God, there's just nothing here. And then the other hand, and yet something was communicated. So it's the kind of dialogue right. that like a really good actor could take and make mm-hmm. something out of it. But speaking of wow. dialogue, uh, I was just watching that. It was the second time I've ever seen it. I watched that Mike Lee film, Mr. Turner. Did you ever see that? I saw that one time. I thought I saw it in the theater. I haven't watched it since. Um, the I was blown away by that movie when I saw it. And I've, I've talked to a number of people who hated it, partly because he seemed so loathsome in certain ways. And mm-hmm. I, I have sympathy for that. I can understand that. Like, if you can't get past that, then you're not going to like the movie. Right. But that aside, oh my God, I think that movie is like as good as anything Kubrick ever did. It's so <laughs> good. The characterizations are so wonderful. And I was talking with another friend who said that he'd actually read the script, the, the screenplay for it. Mm. And I don't know if Mike Lee did it this way, but the way he usually does his movies is he gets his stable of actors together and they're usually kind of mostly the same actors. Right. Uh, and they do these improvs for weeks. Yeah. They like, build, they like build the characters up themselves. Right. And then don't they like kind of make the script out of the improvisations? Yeah, they make the Something script like out of the improvisation. Yeah, exactly. And so you record all the improvs, and then you 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 make a you digest the what they've said and into the actual script, and then you do that. So, uh, which fascinates me as a process. I know. But if they did that in this movie with all this sort of this 18th century diction, it's it's just astounding. And the my friend said that that script does absolutely nothing that movie scripts are supposed to do. Well, Mike Lee has sort of, he's, I think he's always done it that way. And I think, I think Mike, I think Mr. Turner was that way, which yeah, is remarkable um, to do any sort of period piece with improv, I think is insane and, and well, yeah, it take, impressive. It takes, yeah, it, it takes, and it's so beautiful to, it, it's like, it takes a, a very, something you think of as a conventional thing that, you know, which is the period piece mm-hmm. and puts it in this very unconventional structure but it's right. very sly about it. You know, the camera is not zooming around all over the place or all the things we think of when we think of like an unconventional film. Yeah. It's like a, it's a super unconventional film that looks very conventional. I just adore it. I, I yeah, I am um, on and on about that movie. I need to see it again because when I first saw it, I thought it was um, a little too slow for me. Although I did think it was beautiful. Um, Cause it's Try very- again. It, it's very beautiful. Yeah, I know. Um, I love, I usually love Mike Lee. Um, he's made some of my favorite movies. I mean, Secrets and Lies is so good. Yep. Happy Go Lucky is so good. Another Year is so good. So Topsy-Turvy. Topsy-Turvy is that's one of the my only, favorite films That's of all the time. only, yeah, that's one of the few I haven't seen. Oh man, do, it's so good. I know, I, I own it. I, I have the Criterion release, but I've just never gotten around to watching it. I'm sure I'll like it. Um, it it's very, very... Um, funny yeah uh, and in some ways kind of sweet but not in a saccharine way like the happiness in it is like real happiness 
Um, I haven't seen his most recent one, Peter Liu. You know, I saw about half it on an airplane and I thought it was a little stilted. It seemed a little bit like it was trying to jam too many of mm -hmm. the events into one one place, but you know, on an airplane is not the best place to watch anything. <laughs> Especially probably like a slow historical drama. Something that's gonna, yeah, I don't know, his stuff never seems slow to me. It's it's just always the richness comes out of watching the characters being themselves. Mm -hmm. And the language. Yeah, it's not like plot driven. So if you're waiting for like a bunch of plot to happen, you're going to be waiting a while. Oh yeah. yeah, when I when I try to get people to watch Happy Go Lucky and they ask what it's about, I'm like, um, it's, it's not about a lot. Um, it's about a woman who's really cheery and she tries to learn how to drive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's really, really good. I promise. <laughs> well, my one of my favorite plots for a book is Man Goes on Long Walk or Woman Goes on Long Walk. And that's the whole plot. And that's it. it, it that's great, though. You can you can take. It's just so immediately engaging, a little bit like the, you know, that that Norwegian slow TV thing where it's like just seven hours of a train journey where you just park the camera <laughs> on top of a train and let it go for seven hours. It's just hard to take your eyes off it. Right. But I saw Brian Eno give a talk once where he he said that the thing about making really slow art, or art that evolves very slowly whether he's talking about music or visual stuff, is that he was always afraid that people wouldn't have the patience for it. He said, but people will, if it's slow enough, people will slow to its pace. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a the, good way to put it. Yeah, there's really something to it. There's something very mesmerizing about something that changes very slowly. Right. A lot of times in with music, this is something I've discussed with Dan Dzinski, who produced the Lemon record and recorded it, mixed it. And I'm working with him on the new Shearwater one. Uh, would worry sometimes about, he's made so many records that were, you know, three minute songs and pop songs and that kind of thing. He said, I'm worried about having too many slow songs, but I kind of feel like maybe the problem is that the songs aren't slow enough. <laughs> like if you, if you take a slow song and you make it really slow, it's suddenly interesting again somehow. Well, or maybe. Handy. Maybe it's something like if it's slow enough, like to speak to what you know was talking about. If it's slow enough, whether it be a movie or a show or an album, then maybe it like we we really like the suspense is sort of more built in. Like you're waiting to see what the next movement is, or the next note is, or the next sound. Yeah, because, how will this evolve? Yeah, because it's drawn it's drawn out so much that you're getting all these minutia within the you know between the two moments as opposed to just rushing to the next moment. Well, you also really set the, at the beginning of the thing, I think you really, it, your job is to set the audience's expectation about mm -hmm. what what they can expect from you. You have to both, I feel like, show that they're in good hands, um, but if you present them something that's, gonna, that's evolving very slowly, then, then you go, oh, okay, well, that's where we are, and I'm gonna accept that. Right, I mean, some of my favorite music and movies are slow. I don't know I, then I, if that's true, which it is true. I don't know then it's kind of, it's indefinable to me then what makes one of them, you know, more my my groove than another. I mean, my, fa my favorite filmmaker is um, Kelly Reichardt. Oh yeah. Um, who, you know, made Wendy and Lucy and Old Joy and all those movies. And her movies are mm -hmm. about very, very little plot wise, but they're about so much emotion wise. Yeah, exactly. And, and they move kind of glacially but i couldn't be more drawn to every moment well they, they it, tell it's just you, something about the rhythm and the the world that she creates within these characters that really draws me in well and it tells you what uh if you linger on something for a long time you're saying to your audience that this is important exactly and so then your your mind if somebody's telling you that then your mind's going to go looking for those things i think right with music, I the more and more I keep drawing, being drawn to stuff that is, um, well, I don't know about slow and as far as tempo goes necessarily, but but especially um, dark as in frequency dark. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really really tired of of treble frequencies. <laughs> I don't know if that's just my ears getting old or or what, but the the it could just be your taste changing. Well, music, music that's very, the recordings that are very dark, but clear, mm -hmm. which is kind of a hard balance to get, but the, uh, those are, those are the things I want to turn up. And 
people just jam so much treble through things now just because you can, I guess. And it has an effect of making everything sound like it's already coming out of a phone. That's, yeah, that's true. I mean, I sort of noticed that a little bit with the Loma record, the one that you guys put out a couple years ago, that at least compared to Shearwater, it was a little darker, a little more abstract, more minimal, um, more sound play sort of going on, a little dreamier. So oh, I don't know definitely. if that was I don't know if that was intentional. It seemed like it was. Well, we we made it we made it right here out at the in in the country and um, on about maybe a, a fourth of the budget of the last year with a record, mm-hmm. and we were really kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And uh, so it was. I mean, I guess a little bit more lo-fi. I think I might in some ways like it better though. Uh, the Shearwater record, the last one we did, was so shiny, and uh, so expensive by my standards um, that I, you know, I don't know if I would make another one like that ever. The one we're working on now is sort of somewhere between those two things mm-hmm. uh, because I was able to. I mean, Shearwater's out of uh, out of contract now, so we so I'm finally going to own a right now. own a record again. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we crowdfunded it this last year, and I realized that we were going to if I didn't do anything i was amazed that that worked as well as it did but uh we hadn't started it by the end of the year and i realized if i didn't suddenly spend what we'd raised on that on something that it was you know mostly going to go away in taxes <laughs> so yeah. it was, uh, so suddenly it's like oh well what are we going to do so we uh, so we basically have kind of invested in studio stuff mm-hmm. that we could some of which we could then sell later um but at least that way we wouldn't lose it and so the result was that the studio has gotten much better and we've learned how to use it over the course of doing the Loma record. And then now we're using it on the Shearwater stuff. And that's been really a pleasure. And it's, it's let us mostly, I feel like the thing with better gear is that you get to more musical places quicker. It's not so much that you make different choices. It's just, you don't spend as much time putting 20 plugins on everything, trying to make it sound okay. Right. So is, um, is Loma just the three of you? Yeah, me and Dan and then Emily Cross. Um, and then also uh, Emily Lee, who's in Shearwater, toured with us and played some on the new Loma record. So oh, okay. she's, um, she's a presence in it also. Uh, and then Matt, but he played bass on it some as well. But also we had uh, we had this weird experience with that record where uh, the, we got a last year around Christmas, got a my phone started blowing up and people were saying Eno's playing playing Loma on the BBC. <laughs> I was like, what? And it turned out that he was. It was some Boxing Day special where um, he said that he really liked this band Loma and he'd been listening to this one song over and over. And mm-hmm. then in a couple of weeks later, he did it on French national radio. And so I was like, all right, well, better reach out then. And... <laughs> So I sent a note saying, like, I do not want you to produce our record, <laughs> but if you uh, if you you know maybe be willing to to interact with it a little bit, you know we'd be we'd love to send some tracks. And his manager got back and said, Yeah, that'd be great. So we ended up working with him on this record. Did he like co-produce some of it? He uh, he we basically just he produced one song, okay. um, but we sent him the tracks and he just sent back a mix and the mix was at the same time, not especially different and profoundly different. Mm -hmm. It's the last song on the record. And we were just kind of overwhelmed by it. I've never spoken to him at all. (laughs) It's, it's all been just through his manager and getting these tracks back from him. That's so interesting that you can have, such a sort of big you know collaborative moment with someone and never actually speak to them well and it's in a way it's kind of brilliant because it it gets rid of the whole like working with a famous person thing where you true true you you try to please them or um they you they have to listen to you tell them how much you loved stuff they did 30 years ago or you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and instead it just becomes a purely musical communication but we couldn't have been happier with how that came out and it really helped set we got it in, in as we were in the last in the later phases of mixing, and it it affected the way that we mixed the rest of the the record. Yeah, but it felt like winning a Nobel Prize to me. I was just like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. 
especially after we'd spent so much time trying to 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 get inside his head to do those uh, reconstructions of those Bowie albums. Mm. It's funny that you mentioned that because I um I spoke uh, two days ago. I spoke with Thor Harris um for this. Um, oh yeah, he says he says hi by the way. Hi Thor. Um, <laughs> I told him just incidentally, you two were consecutive uh, responses saying that you talked to me. Um, so that was just by sheer chance. And he said to say <laughs> hi and that he uh, he wants to have a good phone call with you soon. Good. Yeah, um, I'd like to talk to him. He's not far away. It's just now, of course, since we're all quarantined, it's just like, well. Yeah, he, yeah he said you weren't far, but um, but yeah, you guys can't go anywhere. So Nope. Um, but it's funny you, you mentioned that because he was sort of talking about when he first was getting started, he would just ask people to be in their bands if yep. he liked them. And the ones that we know him from said yes. And obviously other people probably said no, but he was just like, yeah, I just kind of got over the fear of asking because the worst that'll happen is they'll say no or nothing will come and they won't say anything. So it seemed, it's sort of interesting because you probably didn't expect Brian Eno to help you guys produce a song but you asked and he was like yeah <laughs> yeah well, it's just sort of like well why not you know if he, yeah. he, he said he liked it and um i don't i'm not asking him for some big thing but it's uh we also left it completely open uh, and the thing that i sent him wasn't also it wasn't like uh can you make this song sound like with or without you thank you you know <laughs> it was it was something that was much more i thought bold down his lane very mm-hmm. very spacious and you know a bunch of voices singing and no mm-hmm. drums and you know that kind of thing so it was uh, i thought he'll know what to do with this so what is your role in loma since you are not i mean for those who might not know of loma you are not the main singer um which is no. something we're not used to from you because we're so used to sheer water and 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 hearing your voice so how, what is your what would you say your role is in loma are you the songwriter svengali okay <laughs> no I, it was a it was first it was a challenge to try to to write for another person's voice because i'd never really done it and that was well, you know really the challenge of the first record and trying to imagine words and and songs that i would like to hear emily's voice sing but mm-hmm. early in the process we we made a mistake that uh where we recorded emily's voice in for a song at the wrong sample rate i think we recorded her at 48 by accident and then played it back and we're like oh you know that which if for anyone listening if that doesn't make sense to it's just we it's sort of like with a, if you speed up a, a tape and uh recorded on it and then played it back at normal speed everything would be kind of slowed down like this right and uh but it was just a little bit and the result was very strange. It was as if you had taken Emily and somehow turned up some life experience knob or something like that. She was like projected her 10 years into the future. Hmm. She just sent a little older, a little deeper. And, and it was someone that was, it was a voice that we all liked, but it didn't sound quite like her and she mm-hmm. loved it. And so we went, all right, well, this is your voice from now on in this band. So that's how we record all of her vocals. No, oh, I would have never known that. You can't really tell. No, exactly. It's not um, that pronounced, but and there's I think there's one or two little moments where backing vocals or things where she's at normal speed, but it's mm-hmm. almost all this this altered thing. We call it Loma Lady. <laughs> and because it's this projected person, you know, that's not exactly Emily or me or Dan, um, there's a lot more freedom. You know, it's like, uh, you know, wearing a mask enables you. Yeah. So did and you do that kept, again on this new record? We sure did. Yeah, we kept <laughs> that going. And uh, this time I wasn't as worried about writing for Emily's voice, um, but it's still a challenge to figure out what that voice wants to say and what the, uh, you know, what the subject ought to be. And it just, it's really a, a fascinating process. Probably the most difficult record I've ever worked on. Mm. I think Dan would probably agree. The first one or the new one? The new one. The first one mm. was what came, you know, went up sort of by itself. And then, but this one, we did a lot of, of wandering around before we found things that, that resonated with everybody. Because the rule is that we all have to agree. Mm-hmm. And, or it can be two against one, but it's, uh, ideally we all agree. 
That's right. sort of the nice thing about a three-person structure is that it's either you all agree or it's two against one. Yeah, there's never really a tie. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, so, so there were some things that, that it was just like, it was like watching a horse race where you can't tell who's going to win, you know, it's like mm -hmm. one horse takes the lead and then it's, then it falls well, well back in the pack before the end. So things surprised us all the way up to the end of that record. So would you say that the, would you say that your lyrics for Shearwater were you are usually very personal or do they tend to be more narrative or both like fiction narrative? I don't feel like I do fictional songs ever, um, mm -hmm. but that's more because I, I'm, I'm more concerned with the emotional truth of the song. Um, and I know good fiction, of course, is expresses emotional truth, but the, uh, I mean, on that first, last Loomer record, there was a song called I Don't Want Children that uh, was one of my favorite songs mm. I felt like that I'd ever worked on. And that, that lyric just turned up out of the blue all of a sudden, which almost never happens to me. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that, even though that character doesn't necessarily embody exactly me or exactly Emily or any, it, but it, it just goes, it keeps twisting in different ways that, that I was really interested in. Yeah, because I was going to ask if you sort of halted the personal side of your songwriting for Loma or if it just sort of changed. No, it just changed. No, I didn't feel like I was like having to, to write. Um, no, I, I didn't feel like I was having to suddenly play a different character exactly. It's, it's just that um, I think it's kind of like the thing of wearing your characters lightly. Right. Like you should be able to take them off like a jacket or whatever. It it's it's just a way to amplify certain certain feelings or certain thoughts that you have. Working on the new Shearwater record's been fun because the uh, suddenly that's been that filter has been removed again, and I haven't recorded any Shearwater music singing in quite a while now. I mean, it's been since 2015, I guess. You recorded the last the vocals for the last record in 2015. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 2015, because yeah. then it came out 2016, right? Yeah, so it has been yeah. somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, so, so almost it has been five years. Yeah, and um, I feel like I've done a bunch of singing, but that was because of the Bowie thing, which for those of you who don't know, it was that Shearwater and friends got together and recreated the three Bowie uh, Berlin records, Low, Heroes, and Lodger for WNYC and this big live performance. And uh, that was such a mammoth undertaking of trying yeah, to I'll figure say. out how those records worked and you know, actually try to duplicate them mm -hmm. um, live in a one-shot performance, uh, which we then mixed here. But mm. uh, that, was, you know, that was just a ton of singing. It was 30-something songs. Right. Then not easy songs either, because Bo Bowie was vocally really demanding and kind of all over the place. Yeah. So you kind of took a break from from singing Shearwater songs for a while, and then you got into Loma, which didn't feature your voice very much. So it has, I guess, it really no. Has I didn't been a do while. any. No, it's been it's been five years since I did vocals on a yeah. Shearwater song. So that's it's fun to kind of then reacquaint with that process and think about ways you might want to change how I'm singing. Or, um, yeah, and I mean the last part of good. I was just gonna say the last Shearwater record you mentioned it it was probably your shiniest or you know most expensive sounding record but um it did sort of feel different too you were kind of already to me anyway it did sort of feel like you guys were already kind of shifting gears a little bit i don't know oh yeah I, or vocally but i mean i was really happy with that record i there, there are moments that i really love um and playing it live was really fun. We made a live record from from that time that I, I feel really good about. Those live shows were really loud and exciting. And that was when I met Dan and Emily from Cross Record uh, because they uh, they opened for us on all those tours. Oh, so that's how the Loma relationship came to be, I guess. Yeah, I just was, I yeah. loved watching their set every night and I was just, I still couldn't, I still don't quite understand how they did it. It was <laughs> just two people were making such a gigantic sound, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I thought I'd just love to, I want to, to work with these people. 
it felt to me like Jet Plane and Oxbow, the last record, was maybe Shearwater's most political record. I don't know if that if you would think that's correct. Oh yeah, I, I that record seems pretty um, like almost like it knew the future or something. Yeah, I know because it, you recorded it before 2016, mm -hmm. um, and yet it does have a real political edge and a real uh, prescience to it. Well, that's that's one of the, as you know, it's one of the fun things about making art is that your subconscious knows things that your conscious mind doesn't know yet. And um, sometimes that stuff will manifest. Yeah. But yeah, it just was real. I felt real scared. Um, I mm -hmm. felt like all the most virulent things about the United States were um, were multiplying it at a cancerous rate. And they did. And they didn't really cease either no no it's still going i mean it's it does it does feel like the um it, it's just such an entropic time is that something that's been impacting your songwriting lately oh for sure yeah absolutely yeah. um yeah. and but both in a in it you want to uh you want to take it um head on and also you, you want to flank it too you know like it's you the it makes you really look at the look really hard at the ugliness of some things because mm -hmm. you have to because if we don't do that we're lost yeah and but also um at, at the beauty of other things and the way oh, that definitely. those are, are tangled up together well i mean some people have been talking about with this pandemic about sort of how a lot of people uh, have been becoming maybe kinder outwardly or like more uh, personable to people they don't know. I mean, even people I know have had this experience where they're sort of just, you know, taking a walk and, and everyone waves at them, which is something that never would have happened before. And there was someone talking on the news the other day about how more people are sort of feeling more connected to people or wanting to be more connected to people. But then my worry is just that I hope it doesn't go away when this is over. Well, you know, some of it will. Of course, some of it will. Yeah, it's sort of inevitable. And I guess it's I guess it's good to know that it was ever there. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just we could, of course, we could all stand to be kinder and more personable in our lives. And it'd be nice if it didn't take a crisis to bring that out and then a non crisis to erase it all. Well, I was I mean, I was thinking that I mean, the last really big world-shaping thing you can think of is kind of like world war ii mm -hmm. uh and the all the different ripple effects of that and i was af afraid that something like on that scale was going to have might be that the world might summon that up before this the trumpian fever would break and uh by comparison this thing's relatively almost you know benign but i wouldn't feel that way if i were dying in a hospital or somebody that i cared no. about or or I if i lived in venezuela or if you mm -hmm. know, there's there's so many uh, uh, the world of people in the United States who use the internet is small compared to the number of people there are in the world, and it gets very hard to remember that when you're spending all day on Google News and on yeah. your your email account, which I'm just as guilty of as anybody. But it's just not a representative sample. Yeah. The I mean, if you even if you just watch or listen to the news, you'd think nothing on earth ever happened except in the G20. Right. I mean, there's and, nothing but coronavirus news right now. Right. But only as it only pertains to places. China, Europe, and the United States. Yeah. A little bit in Russia. Every once in a while, there'll be some story about something that's happening in Africa or South America, but it's so rare. Yeah, it is. And, that, and that's part of what I was trying to, to get at with my book, because my book takes place entirely in South America, because it's about this strange group of South American birds of prey called caracaras, which Darwin met in the 1830s and wondered about, uh, but one in particular that he met in the Falklands, he was wondered about it because it seemed to be only there and he couldn't figure out why it was only there. Mm -hmm. uh, but he just set this down and never picked it up again. So the book kind of takes that as, it, as its question and, and answers it, but you have to answer it by way of like 65 million years of, of history. Yeah. Is it a, it's a nonfiction book? Yeah. It's sort of a yeah. nonfiction uh, 
travel natural history um, mm-hmm. adventure mm-hmm. epic but I, I mean, mean all you all you have to be ideally is you know just have to kind of like nature sort of in order for this to, to reach you you don't have to be a bird specialist or anything right and i mean birds in nature and history has long been um sort of a set of themes or motifs in shearwater's lyrics it's not like a new fascination yeah certainly like the natural world and people's relationship or lack thereof to it yeah although uh there are fewer birds in actual shearwater songs than anybody <laughs> thinks so it's like one song that mentions a couple of i mean <laughs> no, I, I, def- I definitely believe that it's i'm not definitely... that guy who writes songs about birds i'm just not it reminds me of um the tallest man on earth he he when he was in um he was doing like youtube videos two years ago or so of new songs and there's one called rivers and he was like yeah sorry here's another song about a river because <laughs> he lives in sweden where there's he's just surrounded by farmland and rivers so he's like i just write about what i see <laughs> they're very compelling i mean yeah but it's just funny because i think people do think Shearwater. maybe it's the name of the band isn't isn't Shearwater a kind of bird Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, so I think some people do sort of just immediately think, oh, that's just another song about birds or animals. But if you look in the lyrics, it, they're really not. <laughs> is it too late for me to change the name? To what? What, too would late. You, what would you change, <laughs> no, what would you change it to? God, I have no idea. It? I know. Crystal not balls. No, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Why did you pick Shearwaters to name yourself anyway? Uh, I just like the the sound of the word, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when I when I first heard you guys, I I don't know how old I was, but when I first heard you guys, probably when when um Rook was coming out, I, I didn't even know Shearwater was a bird. I, I just sounded like a cool word. Yeah, it's uh it's it's a wonderful name for an animal uh, because it sort of describes an attribute of their flight. Because Shearwater are seabirds that you know they very rarely come to land ever, and they have some of the longest. Um, migrations of any bird actually because they they'll fly these some of them will fly these giant figures of eight around the entire atlantic ocean and even though it's not like the arctic turn where it's it's going pole to pole they cover more distance in a year yeah. and they live a really long time but their their world only sort of intersects with ours or it's with most people's metaphor for a band though oh heavens no no it's you know <laughs> long-lived migrants yeah, who who travel for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and travel and travel. Although I think that, I mean, I don't know, that might be done as far as, uh, certainly it's been canceled right now, which is funny. Oh, yeah. I was supposed to be on a tour with Jamie Stewart from Shushu. He came here and we rehearsed and we got this awesome two-piece Shushu set together, but uh, now we can't do it. But That would have been cool. Well, it, I think it, it'll still happen just later. Yeah. I know but it's, Thor, Thor was saying he, he doesn't think anyone will tour probably through the rest of the year because oh, there's, no. there's no there's no vaccine and there won't be probably till the spring. No, uh, uh, live music is, is canceled for now, which in many ways I do not mind one bit because the I mean, the last Loma tour that we did lost a huge amount of money and was totally miserable. We were uh-huh. we were really good, but it was just like, I can't do another one of those. Yeah. And uh, not like not like I'm. uh I'm not saying that like, oh, I can't go on. I'm saying that like <laughs> financially, I can't take a hit like that again. Yeah. And so uh, the the world of sort of small rock clubs is, uh, of, I mean, I've I've learned all I, all there is to learn, I feel, from the world of the small rock clubs of the US and Europe. Mm-hmm. So unless I could play different places or somewhere that's bigger or or something, I just like, if I roll up to another dive in the UK where, you know, they, you got there at the loading time and its doors are still locked. You sit there a long time and some guy comes out and grunts at you and it's <laughs> like, oh, Pete's not here. You, know, mm-hmm. and you just file into this grubby dressing room and you know the sound's going to be shit. And like, it's just, I, no, I'm not doing yeah. it anymore. Yeah, <laughs> not, if I'm, not if I'm not getting paid. You know? Right. I mean, I've, um, so I'm based in Connecticut. So we have a couple, um, nice places finally which is which is good um they just opened one a couple years ago like a newly renovated one by yale which i think has been fruitful oh yeah what's that called college street musical college street musical yeah that's like that's like a 600 cap kind of place 
Um, probably. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's two tiers. There's like a main floor and then a tier and, but the tier is pretty small. Um, and it's just the seated tickets go up there and occasionally they put seats out on the bottom tier. Well, this is the um, thing is that for, for Shearwater, you know, we've never like, there's, there's some, like we could get an audience of that size in like New York, mm-hmm. maybe Los Angeles, Seattle, London. I mean, the number of cities that we can do that in is probably like six or seven. Yeah. And unless you can do that reliably, it's just like touring, it'll just like destroy you. Yeah. So I, I kind of think like when this next record comes out, what I might do is go like, okay, we're playing 10 shows, period. That's it. And even if we lose money on it, we'll lose less money right. than doing 30 shows where you're playing Monday night in Boise kind of things. Yeah. I just always feel like that wouldn't kind of make more sense to do, even if you do more than one, just multiple short stints where you can kind of play some shows on good nights in good places and then take a break and then do it again some other time well this is what anybody in the higher tax brackets of the, of the music business does the problem mm-hmm. is that when you uh the expenses are so high uh, in terms of you got to rent the van you got to get everybody to the place you're trying to go to they're not close together and yeah. uh, it just like there's, there's always been this kind of like, well, bands will do it anyway. It's like, well, hmm, I don't know. Well, maybe they will, but not necessarily me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm not well, it's expensive. Anymore. Yeah. It's really expensive. And it, it, I mean, like the, that last Loma tour lost something like $40,000. Oh, geez. I was just crazy. And this is yeah. a tour that the record label has asked you to go out and do. Yeah. To like promote the record, but you're like, I'm playing for eight people in Sheffield. I don't see how this is really helping me. We could have made three records and made some awesome video things for the same amount of money. Yeah, it's true. That and we I just mean, put in a pile and set on fire. I know that the record industry is waning or, or weaker than it used to be, but touring doesn't Much. always work out either. No, that's this oh. idea people have that touring yeah. is like somehow it's like, don't you make all your money on tour? No, it's the same as any other part of American life. The top 1% makes all the money. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's true. If you go to some some huge, huge, huge concert, first of all, the ticket was a hundred dollars. Second of all, the T-shirt is fifty dollars. You know, so it's like it's it's a you know five thousand person venue, ten thousand person venue. Like the, obviously, those people are doing probably much better. You think of like a Taylor Swift concert. You know, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, or like a yeah. Beyonce concert. But then you go to someone on a smaller scale, people who maybe just play a few shows here and there and they, yeah, they show up to 12 people and it's just like, well, no, I don't make my money from touring. Yeah, no, there's just no way. And it's, I think it's, there's a, there's a threshold at about like, if you can get five or 600 to to a thousand people to come see you in like most major cities of the U S that's like, that's relatively sustainable. Like you can do Mm -hmm. that. Um, But, but below that uh, it, it starts to become really difficult and below that it starts to become impossible. I know. And I'm thinking so, so much lately about the musicians who maybe are below that threshold and which is most of us. Yeah. And make their, you know, right now, especially because, you know, they make their livelihood on, on, on some things that can't happen right now, or maybe their records are getting delayed or their merch can't be shipped out. And I'm just thinking, Oh man, like they finally got to a point in their lives where maybe music is their main income. And now it's, nothing's happening yeah and it's so been I, yeah, I mean, just suspended it, it's been well i mean the, the thing that saved me in the last two years has been um patreon mm-hmm. and it that kind of a model is is I, for a long time i was uh you know like sub pop kind of discouraged me from doing it and that there was a sort of a stigma about it but i was finally like look you know for on spotify to make say eighty thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money to me. Oh, me too. <laughs> you'd have to get, you'd have to get twenty million plays of a thing. Yeah. And to make the same amount of money, and that's if you controlled all the rights and everything on the thing. Right. To make the same amount of money on Patreon, all you'd have to do is get eight hundred people to give you ten dollars a month. Yeah. Now I I can't do that, but it's like, but convincing eight hundred people of something sounds much easier than convincing twenty million of something. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah, it definitely does. So it's, uh, you know, you get 80, 800 people's like not too much bigger than like the Bowery Ballroom. Yeah. So that, 
being able to do that even with uh, has has completely you know it's for the first time in my life I've had a small predictable income mm-hmm. and I'll, and I've tried to set expectations very low mm-hmm. where you know production values are zero my all the things the musical things I do on it are mostly just played into my phone um, mm-hmm. I only do one take of stuff. I take a little care and you know the the writing little writing the posts or whatever but that's what I just did it as an experiment to see if like if I just keep doing this thing that I'm already doing and that's like the thing you know that's what you get you're not getting I'm not sending you a bunch of incentives I'm not sending you a bunch of different things it's just like yeah what you get is that I keep doing this mostly I know that is what I like about the Patreon model I mean you you can offer rewards obviously that are tangible and physical things but when people do only that or do a lot of that it just i'm just thinking it feels like kickstarter where you could send you know oh you donated ten dollars so you get a a purple copy of the cd or something you know like you get a special thing versus something like patreon people usually if they're donating to a patreon it's just because they want content they just want more work they want you to be able to keep making work and yeah, it's not, it, they don't want a bunch of tchotchkes. No, not usually. They want, like, if they donate five bucks or 10 bucks to the Shearwater or whatever campaign, it's because they want you guys to stay around. It's not because they want some little, like, yeah, like you said, like a little figurine or like some little thing. So it's kind of nice. It, it it does feel more personal that way, too. It feels like, oh, okay, so everyone who donated, they actually care enough to donate money to us to then have us be enabled to make more work for them. Yeah, yeah. I, it's like this I, nice symbiosis that you guys can have going on, which maybe you couldn't have had otherwise. I mean, I'm, I'm, I say that I'll, you know, knock on wood because I, I keep thinking like, oh God, am I going to lose all my patrons because everybody's just got it, it's just strapped. Um, mm-hmm. I know, that's true too. But, um, but, you know, luckily that hasn't happened yet. And I think people are getting more used to this sort of idea of kind of subscribing to stuff. So you just sort of fold yourself in as yet another subscription. Yeah. It's and, kind of a nice, nice model though, for that, that give and take. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think like music is basically free, but musicians are, can be, maybe be more expensive. That's yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true though. That's a, that's a good lens to look through because it's like, okay, maybe you can go stream my album on Spotify and I'll get you know, a 20th of a cent for that. But you guys need to then hopefully contribute to the making of that album and we can get some sort of income for that album that's separate from the streaming income. Right, that's separate from the streaming because in the streaming world, only the people who have bazillions of hits are making any any money. Yeah, but, and some, some people probably, you know, the big the big people probably have the bots replaying the songs forever. <laughs> who knows? I, I just, <laughs> of course, this is like, what was it Oscar Wilde said that when... Uh, when uh, Bankers get together for dinner, they talk about art. And when uh, artists get together for dinner, they talk about money. <laughs> Sounds right to me. So we've, we've been, sorry, I mean, we've been in this topic for a while, but it's, it is very much on everybody's mind. And I think especially right now it is. I just feel grateful not to have a job to lose at the moment in a way. I know I'm, I'm a English teacher. So I luckily didn't lose my, my job either. Um, we just moved it to online, but you know, so many people it's just inhospitable now for them to work yeah unfortunately well it's uh i don't know i feel i felt very grateful to be able to keep working on the things that i am working on that i'm still interested in them that they still at least seem of some value to me the book is um i have no idea what anybody's going to think about it because it's been such a long process and i'm the only one doing it yeah uh, I don't know if it's like this for you, but the, the solipsism of writing gets on my nerves after a while. Well, it is sort of like being in a vacuum a little bit. I mean, you are the only audience for so long. You it's can't like, really see it for what it is after a certain point. I also feel like it kind of turns me into an asshole. Like I've just, <laughs> I've become so completely preoccupied with this thing that's only in my own mind that it gets harder to to see and, and be with and interact with other people in the genuine and receptive yeah. way that you, that, you know, you ought to as a human being. Yeah. And uh, music is because it's generally, it's because music is generally more collaborative. Uh, 
that feeds that that it feeds other other parts of your psyche in a, in a way that sometimes seems more healthy. Doesn't seem yeah. more healthy when you're driving ten hours from San Francisco to Portland to play a show that night, but <laughs> you know when you're working with people who you you like and respect on a, a recording project, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean that type of experience is so vastly different. I would imagine from working on a novel or even a screenplay or a solo record or something where you're the only person. It's that communal feel is 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 uh, probably has a very different effect on you. Well, even just working with one other person is great. I mean, that's most yeah. what the last couple records have been that I've worked on. It's It's been me and an engineer and then other people come in every once in a while. But yeah. there's never, if I haven't, it's been many years since I ever had like, let's get the band together in a room and play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That only happens on tour. Uh, it's It almost never, in my experience, is good for um, for trying to come up with things. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask since I've been asking this is um, what is one thing that you've been watching or listening to or reading in your quarantine? If anything, I know you've had a lot of stuff you're working on. I don't know if that's left no time for other stuff. Uh, well, Glenn Gould, Bach, two and three part inventions, always a winner. Sege Mariam Gabru, Ethiopian piano player. Oh, okay. I think she's Ethiopique 21. That's such a wonderful piano solo, wonderful record. Hmm. Um, there was a thing called the Rocks and Waves Song Circle that I got really into. I haven't and, heard that. Uh, you can look that up on, like, you know, on Spotify. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then a, a bunch of Eno stuff, of course, because I've, I've you know, put a, built a statue of him in, in, the, <laughs> in the front yard. Uh, what his, else are you going to do with your time? Well, <laughs> well especially uh, that that old uh, the discrete music record. I still love. Um, I love the stuff with the string quartet. He did on the flip side of it, uh, Evening Star. That sort of that comp of a bunch of different things he did with Fripp. Uh, Thursday afternoon, hmm. um, and the uh, and the that recent uh, somebody time stretched music for airports out to six hours. And, no, I didn't. I didn't catch that one. Oh, it's great! It's just as good as the original. But uh, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about. Before. Yeah, exactly. It's like why, why not have six hours of music for airports? Yeah, that's funny. I'll have to look into that. So those, uh, those in particular, I would say, are, are some things I've been listening to lately. I think everybody, there's so much appetite for um, something to to calm your nerves right now. I know uh, that that it's. It helps a lot. There's also a radio station out of Central Texas called uh, uh, Simply Beautiful, 91.3 KNCT. You can find them online. They're a public radio station out of North Central Texas University, which I think is in Killeen. And they play mostly instrumental music from the 40s through the late 80s. It sounds a little bit like it might be a Christian station or something, but it isn't. And it is just, there is no other music library like it. Mm. It it's routinely surprises me and delights me and makes me laugh and um, is sometimes actually simply beautiful. Sometimes it's, it's just schmaltzy, <laughs> but then sometimes it sort of seems to become self-aware, like they'll play the Twin Peaks theme or oh. <laughs> they never identify the songs. There's at the top of the hour, there's the AP network news, which is always really, really, you know, jarring. Right. Every once in a while, like there'll be two or three of the pieces in an hour will have singing. So you never know when somebody's going to start singing. But usually it's an oboe or, <laughs> you know, or a classical guitar or some of it's like DX7 land from the early 80s. And it's really rad or really bad. But mm-hmm. the stuff from like the 50s is magnificent. And they have a swing band show that's all day on Sundays. And on Saturday night, they have a great sort of like 50s R&B show, Saturday night sock hop. And they have meteorologist Bill Heckey, who uh, is so much the star of the station that he is the only person depicted on their website, which I strongly oh. advise you visit. And he, he gives the weather in a way unlike anyone else gives the weather. Uh, he has a, a really interesting speaking voice, 
and he loves all the details of weather. He gets very excited if anything dramatic might happen. He actually <laughs> has apologized for storms not being as strong as he hoped they would be. <laughs> and he reads off wind speeds with the speed of an auctioneer. And so it's the listening to him give his week-long forecast, which he only does on like Mondays or Tuesdays, usually it's just the day and the day after that, is sort of five bewildering minutes at the end of which you have no idea what the weather is going to be. But he sure did talk for a while. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. Simply beautiful. It's uh, Simply Beautiful 91.3. I unironically love this radio station. Well, it's nice to have a public radio station that is actually reliable. And I don't and mean giving, to give Bill giving you something too much different. of a... Uh, yeah, I don't mean to give him too much guff either. He's he's really good at what he does, and he has a lot of enthusiasm for what he does, and I'm very glad mm. that he does it. Well, that's good. I'm, gl I'm glad that there's something nice to, to tune into every now and then. We really you won't regret it, it. I'm telling you. That and Falkland Island's radio service is also always a, uh, um, a wonderful listen. Uh, mm. If you wonder what people are listening to 7,000 miles away on a tiny set of islands in the South Atlantic, you can find out online. That's so cool that you can find that. <laughs> All right, Jeremy. Well, I got to go back right. into this uh, session here, but it's yeah. really been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a nice, nice time talking to you too. Take care, sir. Thanks, you too.